Grab your Bibles right now and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Go ahead and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we go through the book of 1 Timothy, many different topics come up. When you go verse by verse through a book, God gets to decide what gets taught. And today we're back on the topic of false teachers, teachers in the church. Let me begin by asking you this question. Have you ever had a really bad teacher, like middle school, high school, college? Somebody shot their hand up right away. Yeah! Raise your hand up if you've had a really bad teacher at some point in your past. Come on now. All right, all right. We all know what bad teachers can do to have to sit there and endure that for a semester or, heaven forbid, a year. Wow. Bad teachers. I've had some bad teachers. I had one teacher in college who, uh, when he taught, he looked over the heads of the whole class and talked to the back wall like this. He never looked at us once. Like sometimes we were sitting there and we'd try and like get in the way of him and the wall and he'd just kind of turn and look at a different spot on the wall. He didn't look at us the whole semester. It was like really bad. I had another teacher who never made a statement throughout the whole semester. He taught entirely in questions. How do we fix society's most core problems today? And who will tell us? And we're waiting for the answer. Who will show us the way that we can correct what society... And in what age will humanity... The whole semester question, question, question. We're like, hit us with it. Come on, just say something. He taught in questions the whole semester. And, uh, and one, one high school teacher I had, he was mean because a student fell asleep in class. And so he had the whole rest of the class sneak out while that student slept. And then we all snuck out and they had the next class sneak in and sit down. And so when the bell rang to start the class and that student woke up, he looked around and he was like, oh, I'm in the wrong class. And the teacher was so mean, right? Actually, that's kind of funny. I like that teacher. <laughs> hey, you know what it's like to have a bad teacher. Um, the church wants us to watch out for bad teachers in the church. God wants us to watch out for bad teachers in the church. Now, I don't mean bad as in boring or unskilled, right? Although it helps to have somebody who's got a gift for teaching, doing the teaching. I mean heretics. I mean teachers who are teaching harmful things that could destroy the church. The Bible's calling us to be on the lookout for false teachers, bad teachers. Listen, they will have titles like pastor. They will have letters after their name because they're educated. They might be authors, they might be elders, they might be deacons, they might be small group leaders. Who knows what they are, who they say they are. But listen, false teachers will come into the church. So we have to know what to watch out for, and we have to know how to flee them so that they don't damage our church. This whole series is called The Front Lines of Faith. The Bible summons people in the church to wage war. For what? To fight for doctrine. To fight for discipleship. Well, that doesn't sound very Christian to be fighting in church. Well, if we don't fight, we're going to lay down and surrender, and then the enemy's going to take over. The enemy will try to invade and warp our doctrine, water down our truth, capture our hearts, and divide our people. One of the ways we prevent that from happening is by fleeing from false teachers. Let's pray, and then we'll learn uh, from God's Word today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your Word is powerful and strong. 
By your word, you created the heavens. Lord Jesus, even now you're sustaining them. So help us to hear the powerful word of the Lord, to receive it as it is, not just the words of men, but the word of God. Let it transform us. Let it challenge us. Let it correct us. And most importantly, let it grow us strong as a church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, says this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. The first question the Bible answers is, what do false teachers believe? So write this down. What do they believe? Go ahead and just jot that down in your bulletin. What, what do they believe? And it says here, if anyone teaches a different, different doctrine. All right, so the word is different. I want you to say this word with me because it's so important. Ready? Say it. Different. The world will try and tell you that people who believe different things actually believe the same thing. They will say it's the same, right? But the Bible says it's different. Not just my faith different from a whole different faith, but within the church, your doctrine is different than the doctrine of the Bible. So write that down. Their doctrine is different. What do they believe? Their doctrine is different. Already in the book of 1 Timothy, false teachers have come up twice, in chapter 1 and chapter 4. Now we're back on it again. And when God brings something up once, twice, three times, it's like, wow, he really wants us to hear this. He wants us to know that there are going to be people who bring different doctrine into his church and start teaching it. He wants us to know that. It says in chapter 4, verse 7, in this church in Ephesus, that these teachers were teaching silly myths. Most people knew that what was being said by these people was silly. Some were falling for it. Silly myths. In chapter 6, verse 20, the Bible is going to call their teachings irreverent babble. Babble. These aren't kind words. Babble. Silly. Myths. It's a mix of conspiracy theory and twisted Old Testament verses that was going on. Imagine in your small group, somebody starts mixing Old Testament verses with fables and folklore, and you're like, where are you getting this stuff? That was going on in the church here. In chapter 4, it says these teachers have wandered from the faith, and it calls them insincere liars. And in chapter 1, it says that a few have already shipwrecked their faith, and they're trying to take others down with them. When I hear the word shipwreck, As a result of different doctrine, I think of, check this out, these are pictures of shipwrecks down at the bottom of the sea, submerged because of a tragedy. And let's be clear, the Bible says this is where false teachers will take you. When someone brings a different doctrine to the church, they're saying, all aboard, and they're offering you a trip on the Titanic. False teaching will shipwreck your faith. False teachers are promising you disaster. Their doctrine is different. Write this down. It also says they don't agree with Jesus. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, sound can mean healthy, like the healthy words of the Lord, and this would also include his apostles, those who wrote New Testament Bible books. Someone 
doesn't agree with Christ, the healthy, sound, wholesome words of our Lord. They don't agree with Jesus. Their doctrine is different, and they don't agree with Jesus. You know, there are, there are um, cults and there are other religions that started with our book. And then someone started teaching something different, starting with our book, and then they broke off and became a whole new thing. All right, And their teaching is strange, and it shows what happens when someone starts with our book, starts teaching other things that twist our book, and then develop a whole different thing. Um, for example, Mormons. Mormons teach strange things. Here's a picture of a Mormon tabernacle, and you can hear their choir, and you could go online and see their whole system. But, but how did it start? It started when they took our book and they started teaching strange things. Like what? They teach that Jesus is Satan's brother. They teach that our Lord is the product of a sexual relationship in heaven. Strange things. Are they organized? Are they... Yeah, but it grew out of this. It was twisted and they teach strange things that are very different. What about Jehovah's Witnesses? Have they ever come to your door, knocked on your door? You wonder what to say to them? Here's a picture of their headquarters or what was their headquarters in New York. And they teach strange things. They use your book. They'll show up with your book and they'll tell you that they teach the same thing or a purified version of it. But the truth is they think Jesus is simply an archangel, Michael, not the Lord, not God the Son, not the one who's going to save you, and he is absolutely not worthy of worship. They teach strange things, but they started with our book, and they twisted it, and then they moved on to something new. Um, Islam is one more faith that came from our book, and they teach strange things. They started with our book, and they started teaching strange things, like it needed a revision and another prophet to correct things. They teach that Jesus never died on the cross. Is that the same as what you believe? Because Good Friday's coming up and Easter Sunday's coming up, and if Jesus never died on the cross, then it's a worthless weekend. It's a worthless, deceptive weekend. They teach strange things. And there are millions who gather and sing and worship and listen and obey and hear, but it started with our book and it twisted what was said, and now it doesn't agree with what Jesus originally gave us. Their doctrine is different. They don't agree with Jesus. And next, write this down, they promote ungodly living. They promote ungodly living. It says here, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. The teaching that accords with godliness. Godliness is a really important word. In the New Testament, it's used 15 times. And get this, in 1 Timothy, it's used 8 of those times. All right? So eight of those times is right in this book. So the word godliness is a really important word in this book. Godliness comes from a root word that just means to step back. And the reason why you would step back is out of fear or awe for the the thing or person who you're in the presence of. So start with the root word that means to step back. Add to it your stepping back because of fear or wonder of who it is or what it is that you just witnessed, and you get the word, you get godliness. Godliness means in your heart there is a reverent distance or separation placed between you and a holy God. Like, whoa, I'm in wonder and in reverent fear of this God and His Word. So, 
if I had to define godliness, I'd say this. Godly means to behave like God is dead serious about his word. Is that what God said in his word? And I step back in fear and wonder like, whoa, he's dead serious about that. The godly person shows that reverent fear, that distance, that safe reaction in a thousand different ways. That's godliness. What is ungodliness then? The product of false teachers. Well, ungodly means to behave like God is seriously dead to his word. Eh, I know that's what it says, but I can change it. I don't have to obey it. Who knows if it's really true? God is seriously dead to that. I, I have no fear in transgressing this boundary called God's word. And I will put myself closer to peril because I'm not stepping back in fear and wonder. I'm walking forward in ignorance and disobedience. That's ungodliness. And ungodliness shows up in many different ways. Many different sins and false teachings because I'm ungodly. I'm not afraid of a holy God. Basically, ungodly means you're not placing adequate distance between yourself and peril. I heard of a woman uh, this last week who showed up at a zoo on Friday and she climbed over the railing between the, you know, the, the zoo goers and the lions because she wanted to get closer. In fact, she wanted to feed them. And there was just these little thin bars between her and the lion. So the zoo uh, security kicked her out of the zoo and said, you, you got to get out of here. Well, she came back again the next week, like on Monday. So check this out. Here's a report. caught feeding and serenading the lions. Want a cookie? (laughs) Singing some song about how much she missed them. All right, that's a portrait of ungodliness when I will cross over the safe guardrail and do things that put myself in harm's way. That's ungodly. And the church is supposed to say to false teachers, hey, You're tampering with the Word of God. You're crossing over barriers He set up. It's weird and it's dangerous and you need to stop it for your good and ours. This is how we react to false teachers. What do they believe? Their doctrine's different. They don't agree with Jesus. They promote ungodly living. That's the first point. The second question that's asked in the Bible and answered in the Bible is this. How do they behave? So write that down. How do they behave? What do they believe? covered that. Now, how do they behave? How can I know if somebody is not necessarily a true teacher? Well, it goes on in verse 4 to say this. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. All right, so how do they behave? Well, write this down first. Swollen with pride. Swollen with pride. Completely lacking humility, focused on self-glory. 
self-exaltation. So if I had to pick a cartoon character who is like the proudest of the proud, who would you pick? I pick from Beauty and the Beast, Gaston. No one fights like Gaston, right? Belle, you will marry me. He's just so into himself. Self-glory, right? Bloated with conceit. Swollen with pride. This is a trademark of a false teacher because they use God and the Bible and the church to get praise. Two forms of pride found in Scripture condemned are love of praise and love of power. All right? So if I want more praise than God has righteously assigned to me, that's pride. But another form is if I want more control than God has righteously assigned to me, that's pride too. These false teachers are using God to get praise. They're, they lost the battle with pride. They want to be worshipped. They use God to get their worship. Now, careful here, because not everyone who struggles with pride is a false teacher. Sometimes Christians are too quick to say, oh, him? Oh, he's a heretic, right? Christians will struggle with these sins until we move on to glory or Christ comes back. So we have to be careful. I'm not saying somebody who struggles with pride or falls into vanity and repents or is a false teacher. I'm saying for a false teacher, this is their heart. They love adoration and praise. It's what they live for, and they build their ministries on it. They're swollen with pride. I read a quote by William Shakespeare about pride this week, which is so moving. He wrote this, But man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he is most assured, his glassy essence, like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as makes the angels weep. How descriptive is that? Angels weeping over humans trying to gain praise on earth. Swollen with pride. How are you doing with humility? Do you know the Bible says humility is a Christian virtue that you have to put on like a garment every day? You don't wake up wearing it. Parents, you know what it's like to force your kids to get dressed. Am I the only one? Get dressed. I don't want to. You will. You're not going out of the house like that. You don't even have pants on yet. I don't care. You will get dressed. Imagine you get to work, guys, and your buddy just has his shirt off. You're like, dude, what are you doing? What? You need to put some clothes on. Listen, this is what Christians should do to each other. They should say, hey, you forgot to put your humility on this morning. Get back in there and get dressed. Christian virtues like humility need to be put on every day. Humility is also like deodorant. You can only go a couple days without applying and then you start to smell. You need to apply it daily, right? And the younger you are, the more you need to apply. Humility. We understand here that at the heart of false teaching, many false teachers really are just expressing pride. They, early on, when they heard the gospel, did not receive it, did not humble their hearts before an almighty king and totally repent. They kind of filed it away and they started to use it to get more glory for themselves. And maybe they can teach it, maybe they can share it, but you know what? They've never humbled themselves truly before it. They use Christ as a means to an end. 
right? Why would they make Christ their Lord and Savior? They've already got one of those. It's themselves. Jesus now becomes an advocate to try and get other people to worship the false teacher. False teaching really is just an expression of pride and a person who will not humble themselves before the doctrine of Christ. We have to then guard our hearts against pride. We have to put on humility because it's the proud heart that will lead us away from sound doctrine. They're swollen with pride. How do they behave? They're swollen with pride. What else? Write this down. They're stuck in ignorance. They're stuck in ignorance. It says in verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He doesn't get it. You can't show it to him. What does this mean? It means you go to this person who's a false teacher and you say this is the truth and they fight you over the truth. They, don't, they won't fully agree with it. And, and this is like a blanket condemnation that says they don't get it. They don't get any of it. It's kind of a, and it's a big indictment to say they don't understand anything, but because they get Christ wrong, they get everything wrong. They're stuck in ignorance. You can't show them their folly. The bottom line is they don't get it. They refuse to see it. Are you a puzzle person? Do you like to put puzzles together? I, you're, you're a little strange. I'm just going to throw that out there. If you like puzzles, because it's so tedious and frustrating. I was addicted to one puzzle in my life, so I feel you. I can't totally condemn you because then I'd be a hypocrite. But I'll say this, after all the time and energy that I put into my one puzzle, I walked away feeling kind of guilty because that little thing made me so mad, right? Oh, it cost me a week of my life to put you together. Puzzles. Maybe you're so proud of your puzzling skills, you don't even look at the box top. Oh, box top? I don't look at the box top. I could put it together without the box top. Well, la-dee-da. False teachers won't look at the box top of what God is showing them that is true. They try and assemble it on their own, and they get it wrong. Somebody walks up and says, this is the way it's supposed to look, and they're like, no, get that away from me. I'm going to figure out how truth is supposed to be assembled on my own. And you can't show it to them. They understand nothing. They don't get how Christ is supposed to be at the center, and they're supposed to humble and worship Him. They don't get all that. And you can't show it to them. So they're stuck in ignorance. This can be somebody who is raised up in the church, has heard the truth, and just will not receive it. Do you know people like that? Do you know people who should know better? They've heard it all their lives, and they still won't accept it. And they say things, weird things, to get under your skin, and you're like, you know better. You've heard the truth. You're twisting it and refusing to believe it. Then there are other people who got bits and pieces and they were poorly discipled and so they only ever had a warped version of it. You maybe try and go and show them the truth and they're not having it because so-and-so and such-and-such told them whatever and they're, you just can't get through to them. They're stuck in ignorance and they, at the end of it all, understand nothing. They don't understand it. Sometimes in listening to a false teacher, you think they get it, but then you, they don't. And you're like, it sounds like maybe they get it, but then they don't. You try and pin them down and you can't. And, and their sense of orthodoxy is almost like a magician. Like, now you see it, now you don't. Are they, or, are they within the faith or are they not? And, and they nuance words and, and you're like, I think there's something fishy about your teaching. And then sometimes, finally, these false teachers finally come right out and say it. Like, I don't think hell is real. And then you're like, all right, you just blew it. Bye-bye. You cleared it all up. But there's this whole period where they're just 
not submitting to the truth. They're still playing with it, which leads to this next one. How do they behave? They're swollen with pride. They're stuck in ignorance. And write this down. They've got a sick interest in controversy. It's, it's unhealthy. It says here, um, understands nothing. It says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. So contrast that with verse 3, which says there's sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, healthy eating spiritually, right? Versus this unhealthy, sick, rotting spiritual meat that they're feeding on. Unhealthy, sick, morbid interest in controversy or strife of words. Word battles. I don't mean, I don't mean that they're fighting about gray areas. I'm talking about black and white. Is Jesus the Son of God? Is He the only way for anyone to get saved? Is this word inspired and inerrant? Is it sufficient? I mean, fighting over these, what we would call, national borders of orthodoxy. We're not, not talking about state lines of preference from denomination to denomination. We're talking about black and white, right and wrong. This person just keeps fighting about that. Strife of words. They're swollen with pride. They're stuck in ignorance. They have a sick interest in controversy. They just fight over black and white issues. When I think of a fighter, someone who is good at wrestling, here's what I think of. I think of, this is the rock. I wouldn't want to get in the ring with him, would you? No. And, And when you talk to a false teacher about black and white issues of the faith, it's like a wrestling match. Like, it's a fight. Like, they don't agree. They see things differently. All right, but but... Frequently, they'll have a nice, sweet voice and they'll sound like a pastor. Maybe they're even called a pastor or a bishop or an apostle or a deacon or an elder or a small group or whatever title they affix to themselves. Maybe they're an author and they write it on blogs that sound very kind and Christian, but then you read something that's sick, that's spiritually sick and not true. And you're like, something ain't right with that guy. And then when someone confronts them on it, they don't, Admit it's wrong. It's a fight. We have to watch out for that. They have a sick interest in controversy over black and white issues. So what do they believe? Well, their doctrine is different. They don't agree with Jesus. They promote ungodly living. How do they behave? They're swollen with pride. They're stuck in ignorance. They have a sick interest in controversy. Number three, write this down. What do they produce? What do they produce? You can judge them by their teaching. You can judge them by their heart. You can also judge them by what they're producing in the hearts of others, all right? And it goes on to say this, quarrels about words, which produce what? Which produce, and then there's a list, and first on the list is envy. Write that down. They produce envy. Envy. Envy is defined as having a problem with what someone else has. I want what you have. That's envy. It can be something material, like I want your house. I want your job. I want your girlfriend. I w- it could be something you have. Or it can be something intangible, like, like dad treats you different, and I want that. Or, or at work, you receive this, you have this reputation, and, and I want that. It's when what you have is a problem in my heart. As a result, I either demand to have what you have or I try and 
make it so that you don't have it either. Either I get it or no one gets it. That's envy. In this case, the Apostle Paul had great authority and power. Jesus appeared to him, gave him the ability to write Bible books, put him in charge of the early church, sent him out on the first surge of missions, right? And there were these other teachers who were like, who does he think he is? Why does he get to be the one telling you what to do and think? Envy, envy. We want his power. We want his authority. We want his gift. And we're willing to tear him down to get it, right? That's envy. Envy is a despicable sin that lurks in the heart. Envy can be described as um, what it feels like when you lose the Oscar. When you spent your life to work and act and you're sitting there about to maybe receive award and then the Oscar goes to someone else. That produces envy. Check this out. These are pictures of the moment someone loses an Oscar. <laughs> Look at that face. Like, oh, really? Here's the next one. This face is like, huh? Huh? Here's the next one. I like this one. I'm so happy for you. You deserve it. You really do. And the last one's funny too. She's just like, nah, uh uh-uh. Don't see it. No, can't believe it. Envy is when someone else gets it and you want it. You feel you deserve it. Envy is not a minor league sin. When it grows in your heart, you should be terrified at what it will produce. Do you know in Matthew 27, 18, Pilate recognized that it was from envy that the false teachers killed Jesus? They wanted what he had. And because they couldn't have it, they'd rather him be done away with. Hey, when Satan looked across the landscape of humanity and picked up a weapon to kill the Messiah, it was envy. Envy is not a toy gun. It's a murder weapon. And when we allow envy to sit in our heart, it fills us with murderous anger toward those we're supposed to love. Who does he think he is? Who does she think she is? When we resent those around us and crave their power and influence, it leads us to murderous, malicious anger towards others. James 3, 14-16 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. They're producing envy. They want the power other people are possessing. They're willing to teach false things to try and get their camp around them, to divide the church and lead others away from the Apostle Paul and the Lord Christ himself. They're producing envy. Next, write this down, they're producing dissension. Dissension, it says produce envy, dissension, and it goes on in verse 5 to say constant friction. Dissension is fighting. It could be bickering. Um, I like how the New King James translates this. Translates it wranglings. Wrangle. Here's a wrangler. I like this. This is what a false teacher produces in the church. It like you feel like you're interacting with a with a human rodeo. 
It's just like always bucking around and kicking people off and throwing people down. And you're like, what's with that person? Constant friction, ongoing strife, dissension. This is again where we're supposed to be careful because believers and non-believers can cause problems in the church. We're not allowed to say, well, because this person is causing strife, they must be a heretic. Christians will struggle to get along. You know Christians who are hard to get along with, am I right? Sometimes you're a Christian who's hard to get along with, am I right? This isn't automatic proof that you're a heretic. But division and strife, dissension, constant friction is the signature of a false teacher. It marks their life. It marks their ministry. It's built into the hard drive of their soul. It is not something they're fighting. It's something that they are losing. Dissension. They'll fight for power. They're willing to rise up, stir others up against godly leaders. They'll divide. They'll form camps. They'll break away from the church and take others with them. It's dissension. They produce envy. They produce dissension. Write this down. They produce slander. They produce slander. Slander is sinning with your tongue. Malicious talk. Slander is when your tongue is razor sharp and you use it to say something that injures a Christian or a leader. You by now in your life have found out the hard way what it feels like to hear someone say something about you, to hear someone say something to you, to hear someone say something to someone else about you. And when you hear the words that person said, the words cut you like a knife to your soul. They said, what about me? And the pain, the, the hurt, the betrayal, the agony show you firsthand the cutting power of words, slanderous words. And false teachers use slanderous, malicious words to injure good leaders. Pastors, elders, small group leaders, deacons, they say things that injure the person or that injure the person's reputation. They slice them up. They might do it with the softest, kindest tone you've ever heard. But the point is, at the end, that leader has just been sliced to pieces. And others are viewing them differently because of the words used. Slander is malicious talk. You can sin with your mouth. You can sin with your eyes. You can sin with your feet. You can sin with your hands. You can sin with your mouth. You could also sin with your ears. Do you know you can sin with your ears? Do you know how? Watch, I'll show you. I just did it. Did you see? What did I do? I just listened to things I wasn't supposed to listen to. Gossip, slander, people running other people down in the church, and here's what I did. I'm sinning with my ears. And God will hold us accountable for how we sin with our ears when we listen to slander and malicious talk about leaders and pastors in our church. They produce envy. They produce dissension. They have malicious talk. They're damaging the person, the ministry, the church, the leadership. And then they've got another counterfeit claim to present to people. We have to closely guard our tongue. 
They produce envy. They produce dissension. They produce slander. And they produce suspicion. You can write that down. Suspicion. It says slander in verse 4. Evil suspicions. They'll question the motives of legitimate godly men. Well, I think he's just all about himself. I wonder why he really wants to make that happen. They undercut their decisions. I've never been for that. I don't know why. They, but all the while behind, it's because they've got this other agenda, this other doctrine. and They're willing to drag people away towards false teaching. But they create suspicion. They're not thinking clearly. Why? Because they view anybody with influence as a threat. They view anyone who's getting attention as a threat. And they want all of it. It's envy. So they're willing to undercut. They're willing to create suspicion. You can't trust her. You can't trust him. And then they take their faction away. Suspicion. Why? It says here they do this because they're of depraved mind and they're deprived of truth. Again, I'm not talking about good, well-meaning believers who are struggling to get along. I'm talking about a flat-out wolf in the church. A wolf that we're on the lookout for. This person has a depraved mind and they're deprived of truth. Deprived of truth means the truth has been taken from them. By who? Well, we know that when the seed is scattered, the enemy, it says, comes, and if it doesn't fall upon a faithful, believing heart, the enemy takes it away. They didn't receive the truth of the gospel, so it was taken away from them. They've been robbed. You go through the closets of their soul and every drawer, and guess what you won't find? Faith in Christ Jesus, because it was stolen from them. They've been deprived of the truth. It says they have a depraved mind. What does that mean? Depraved can mean Depraved can mean spoiled, like like the leftovers in your fridge. Like the old leftovers, in like way in the back Chinese food from a week ago. Like you get back from vacation and you open the fridge and whoa! Like you get the hazmat suit on and take it straight to the dump. Don't even put that in the trash can. Because it's toxic. And the Bible says that's the mind of the false teacher. It's spoiled. It could also mean corrupt, like a hard drive. The younger generation who owns video game systems knows the frustration when your video game system breaks. Our kids had an Xbox 360. My daughter played Minecraft for a year and built these worlds. And then there's a one-year warranty. And at the one-year and two-month mark, guess what happened? We turned it on, and the Xbox 360 politely announced, memory not found. Memory not, we looked all over, lost its mind. Memory not found. Clicked all over the place. Some days I wake up and feel like that, right? Memory not found. The more kids you have, the more often you feel that way. I was like, I feel for you, Xbox, but find it, because my daughter's Minecraft is on there. Sorry, memory not found. Corrupt hard drive. That's the mind of a false teacher. Things aren't working right up there. It's corrupt. It's broken. It's going to damage other people. Memory not found. When we understand the mind is depraved and deprived of the truth, then we ask ourselves, why would we put ourselves in that position where we would let them be our primary spiritual influence? 
Listen, if there's a false teacher teaching false things in a church or in a book, why would you feed on that? Why would you let your children eat that food week in and week out? We have to be greatly concerned about it. The last one is this, greed. What do they produce? Envy, dissension, slander, suspicion. And the last one is greed. Greed. It says here in verse 5, constant friction. Those who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness is a means of gain. They want money. Deep in their soul, they want money. They use the truth to get money. They use the church to get money. They use people, the Bible, to get money. I heard someone recently describe the prosperity gospel, which is where they mix the gospel with prosperity of finances and they promise you, you know, Jesus will make you rich. Get saved because it comes with a free car. Somebody said this, prosperity gospel doesn't teach people to love God. This theology teaches people to use God to get their real God, which is money. Their God is money. They'll use God and the Bible and the church to get their real God. At the heart of it all, they want cash. Cold, hard, luxurious cash. And they'll flaunt it and they'll... But you can't serve both God and money. You can't. You put all this together and what do you get? You know what they believe. False teachers, their doctrine is different. They don't agree with Jesus. They promote ungodly living. They behave swollen with pride, stuck in ignorance, sick, interest in controversy. They produce envy, dissension, slander, suspicion, and greed. And at the end of it all, we find out what our church has to watch out for. We have to guard our hearts against such things so that we don't become false teachers, so that we don't become prey to false teachers. We have to be on the lookout to keep our teaching in our church strong, to keep our leaders healthy at heart. And God is giving us a jarring wake-up call here to say this is what you need to be after and you have to march to the front lines of faith and be ready to defend it with everything you've got. I think an appropriate way for us to close out this message is to take a moment and to have all of us pray for our church, to pray for the teaching of our church, to pray for the doctrine of the leaders of our church, to pray for discernment in our church. Right now, let's close our eyes, let's bow our hearts, and together, let's lift up a prayer to the Lord that He would fill our church with strong, godly leaders who teach biblical, healthy doctrine. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we understand that You are the Word In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You are the revelation from above. So we want everything we do and teach and believe to accord with with your nature. We want to be found adhering closely to the message as it was given to the apostles and the teachers. The truth that is handed down in our most holy Bible. So we pray your strength and your blessing upon all who would handle this book in our congregation. Every small group leader, every ministry leader, every block leader and deacon and elder, every pastor, those who teach the children, the teenagers, the college students, everyone who preaches from this stage, myself included. Lord, put a close watch over the doctrine of this church. We pray that you would prevent anyone from coming in and misleading many 
capturing hearts and dragging them away. I pray that you would help to protect your flock, Lord, so that we feed on good, healthy, wholesome doctrine. We grow up to be strong and mature in the faith. Lord, we pray that you would show us when we err and teach us so that we might use skill, wisdom, and knowledge from above and not from the earth. We ask this blessing upon your church now and for the decades to come. Use your word, Lord, to save, to heal. Use your word, Lord, to grow. We pray that your word would be highly exalted in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name.